in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Moon Tea Podcast. Today, we have a return guest, Sam Ovenshine. What's up, Sam? Hey, guys. How you doing? What's up, Sam? Doing well. How about you? Not bad. Not bad. I have positioned my camera this time so that there are no houseplants or virtually no houseplants. I'm actually just noticing the air plant now in my background. Styling. I love that. I mean, we can talk about your closet doors for the next 20 minutes if you want. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. And the light switches after that. <laughs> and then maybe the ceiling paint. Yeah. Well, uh, what what is up, Sam? So for those of you listening, the last time Sam was here, he came prepared with topics and we went we went through like two of them. And so Sam, if you have topics, feel free to. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, well, should we just should we just dive right in? Let's sure. dive right in. Absolutely. Okay. I have I have I have so many things here, but I wanted to start with one of the one of the topics that you guys covered in an earlier episode, and I can't remember exactly when it was, if you remember, was fat fire. Fat fire. <laughs> and I think along with that, you talked about fat fire. And then I think you also looked at, um, reviewed someone's post on blind, blind blind.com. Someone who essentially has fat fire. And I thought, I thought that was an interesting discussion. I was wondering if you guys have had any discussion in previous episodes and totally possible that I've missed it about the anti-work movement and the anti-work subreddit online. Zara, I haven't. No, we haven't. I don't think so. Are you you guys familiar with the anti-work subreddit? I am not, no. Do you know John? Uh, John is usually I'm, the one that would enlighten me. I'm I'm familiar, but Sam, can you explain the uh, anti-work subreddit? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'll do my best because I think it's relatively new, but it's gotten quite popular recently. So, um, it's basically a subreddit, and I think it started um, with people basically just posting screenshots of obnoxious things that their employers have done to them, and of course, there's no shortage of those things. But it really feels in the last couple of months or so that the subreddit has grown quite a lot and it's kind of coalesced a lot of people, people who are, I think, unhappy with their jobs. I think people who are unhappy with capitalism, people who are unhappy to be working at all, people who are unhappy with the direction that society is taking. And I think some of these other things play into it and people who are just fed up with their bosses and their coworkers and the state of things, you know, inflation, pay all of those things. But it's been it's been interesting to me to see that it's gone from, I think, kind of a bit of a fringe thing that I had a passing familiarity with and saw fire being talked about online much more often to recently where I see a lot of anti-work discussion and very little fire discussion relative to it. So it feels like of the two things, and they're kind of you know opposite ends of the spectrum in some ways, this anti-work movement has resonated with a lot more people. Than the, than the fire movement. And I'd say that there might be some generational difference that I think among the so-called anti-workers, it might skew a little bit more Gen Z, a little bit less millennial, but I, I don't know for a fact, that's just my, just my observation. So and that's just a quick thing is yeah. fat, fat fire for anyone that re- is needing a reminder is financial independence, retire early. And uh, there's all but like times 10. Yeah. Right. There's fire and then there's there's fat fire, which is the next level. There's and also it, chubby ch- chubby fire. What is that in between? Yeah. 
I, was, I wasn't aware of that. Is there like dad bod fire? No. There's lean fire. There's, I don't know. Someone probably made up something else. But Googling it right now. There is lean fire. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now. Wow. Okay. Anyways, you were saying, sorry, Sam. I, no, no, no. So yeah. it's it's been really interesting to me because I, you know, I'm coming to this subreddit from a position of, I, I guess, you know, you guys talk about work on the podcast and we've talked about our working lives before and, you know, you just, you just work. That's just what you do. And I haven't given it much more thought than that in a really long time. I don't, I wouldn't describe myself personally as terribly invested in this thing or this movement, but I, I do think the, the thing that has resonated the most as I read through it is the point that people make over and over again, which is that when you pull back and you look at the big picture, it is quite depressing to imagine that for most of us, our adult existence consists of working and working a pretty large share of the time in order to save enough money so that you don't really have to work in years that aren't quite as productive as years in which you work. And that is a message that I think most people can get behind almost regardless of the, you know, if, if you're on the labor side of the equation, you know, regardless of where you stand within it, you know, that that point can resonate just a little bit. It certainly resonated with me. So I was curious what you guys think about this. And I think John has thought a little bit about this. And I know you have your own kind of strategies that we've talked a little bit about before uh, to maybe do things a little bit differently. But yeah, I'll, I'll pause and leave it there. Anti-work is fire but without any way out it's just like with with like us it's just a sense of uh like being owed something better but then fat fire is they're like i think they're like similar philosophies in that in both communities you do not want work to define you and be uh, be the thing that takes up all of your uh, waking hours and all of your resources. But fire is something that has an actual like realistic exit. Um, I don't really, I don't really, uh, I, I'll, I'll read the anti-work subreddit just out of curiosity, but I don't think that's the healthiest way of approaching problems related to work with your, with your boss and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have that much else to say, but uh, it is, I mean, it is entertaining to read texts where, where uh, managers are like, I need you in the office or I need you in the restaurant tomorrow at 7 a.m. and then the person's like are you going to pay me more and then the, the manager's like no and then he's like but I still need you and then and then the text back is like I quit and everyone's like yeah um, cheer them on nicely done got what they deserved yeah I think that's really interesting I'm, I'm actually I'm I guess I would be coming from the lens of a first-time learner of this type of subreddit and it makes a lot of sense that it's there, but I'm just sharing my screen and those who are just listening in a different form, uh, auditory form, I'll we'll read through it really quick, but we're, we're on the, the hot thread of, of anti-work on subreddit. And like, there's this one of, you know, I truly wonder how much longer America can hold out before it just collapses. Jobs are paying 30K, houses are 300K plus, food is getting more expensive, student debt is killing us, gentrification is making people homeless, rent is sky high, 
like how much longer can it last? And then it seems like a, a number of other things are kind of, um, it, it seems a bit, it's like, what do you take from this, Sam, so far of the overall, is it about not enough pay and too high prices due to the inflation of things and or just the cost of living and no way out in the sense of people aren't finding the ability to have such an incredibly large nest egg to live off of the in interest of it all? Or is there, like, what's the main reason people are kind of out crying about against capitalism? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's probably the biggest reason that I've seen. I think one of the one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, it kind of started off in one way, but it feels like it's been just a huge magnet for any kind of complaints anywhere in this space. But I do think the one that you read out is probably is is quite illustrative of what's there. And I think it's probably the most it's one of the mo most salient arguments, I think, that's repeated quite a lot. And it's it's basically, you know, I feel I feel a lot of anxiety for myself or for my generation and thinking about how expensive things are, where I stand, the opportunities that are available to me, particularly relative to my parents and older generations, at least that's the, that's the perception. Um, and then the conclusion isn't really there. The implicit conclusion is something like this just isn't working or does anybody, you know, everybody else feels the same way, but it's not, it's not spoken enough about, I don't know that there's necessarily an next step beyond that. And I think, I think John is right to an extent that there's the solutions that are being offered or the, the things that people propose or suggest aren't quite feasible or are kind of self-defeating or non-existent. And that that's to some extent, I, I think kind of cheapens or weakens the, you know, it's, it's easy kind of to dismiss it, but I do think that that core complaint and that core criticism seems to have some validity and seems to be, seems to be pretty popular and, and growing and, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And just to clarify, so is the core complaint or core criticism that one, people aren't paid enough or two, like their work environment isn't conducive enough to a happy, balanced life that they can sustainably live on? Or is it three, just it's not paid enough that they can then just not ever work again, quote unquote? I really, yeah, I've seen all three of them, but I really, I think the first is probably the closest to it. And it could be I'm making six figures. It could be I'm making hardly any money, but the complaint seems to be basically the same that regardless of what my absolute salary is, I don't feel secure. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel like my needs are being met or will be met or that the current track that I'm on and other people are on collectively is going to a good place. Feels hmm. like things are going to get worse over time, which might be reflective of, you know, the, just the general mood in the country and the way things are, you know, things are feeling and people are feeling about things too. And it's kind of a microcosm of that. In the, in the so subreddit. curious. Yeah. Cause I'm guessing in the past few months, again, like you had just been, you just had a career change. I don't know if it's like a promotion or something, but it's a different career track. You became a manager, right? And so with that, maybe is that a lens now that you're kind of looking and analyzing things through, especially when reading this of maybe there's maybe it, like to a point, right? What is that number past what is like 69,000 or 60,000 past that the amount of happiness someone derives supposedly statistically doesn't actually increase that much but from a quote unquote as you're saying needs not being met type things like is that um, more are you saying it's like giving people meaning value aspiration inspiration to work in collaborative environments that feel meaningful to them and feel supported by manager managers and that type of methodology or is it about pay and money or both 
I th yeah, I think I think both sometimes. Yeah, I, I see a little bit of both. One of the th so what's really interesting to me when I think about this is that there are a lot of people for whom this is absolutely true, and it's it's certainly been true for myself. Where I'm just going like it's things things are tight. It's very hard to make ends meet. It's hard to see how this will get better. I feel depressed about that. I feel excluded from the opportunity that's out there. Um, relative to my peers or just versus my own expectations in times when I think that's been pretty objectively true or pretty close to that. What's been interesting though, is I think among, among, you know, people that we know in New York or friends that we have, I would describe almost all of them as being pretty professionally capable and get, you know, doing quite well, you know, maybe relative to their parents or relative to the population or something like that, almost all, you know, a lot of tech employees, a lot of people in kind of similar roles, finance, things like that. And I think there's a shared sense, even among almost all of those people, maybe not quite all of them, but almost all of them that they don't, they don't feel financially confident or comfortable about the future, about themselves, what they're able to buy or to achieve or able to do um, with it. And I think uh, there was an article I was reading, I can't remember where I read it, but someone described the, the millennial condition as something like, you know, a sense of an increasing sense of have and have not and a just constant anxiety or precariousness that's perceived about, you know, I want to make sure that I fall into the right bucket and do all of the right things because the alternative is really bad and, and getting worse. And I don't feel confident that I'm going to land in the right place. And that, that I will say def definitely resonated with me and I think has resonated with me for a long time. And I don't think has gotten less salient as I've made moves and kind of progressed in my career that I, I still feel that way. Have either of you heard of Doomer optimism? No, no, I haven't. So Sam's point about, about a generation of people who are um, understandingly frustrated about, about uh, their, about not being able to, um, have like basic healthcare, um, having like getting a place to live, uh, and just like living an okay life. Um, so it's kind of related to that. The idea behind Doomer optimism is, is, uh, it's a little sad. It's the, the idea that we're all kind of screwed and uh, like society as we know it is about to collapse. Uh, the optimism part comes in when we say okay given that there's a chance that society might collapse like how do we want to continue to live our best lives um so the way that i found out about this movement is uh i've been following an author named tucker max um wrote a few new york times and sellers name and from the 2000s too yeah and he he uh recently it's like i don't hear from him for a few years and then he writes this blog post about about like oh i bought a 40 acre farm just like 45 minutes from austin or a ranch 45 minutes from austin um i'm i'm like doing all these things and gaining all these skills like i'm looking for people who can do like plumbing and construction and and uh these very uh like these these skills that are like 
applicable for those kinds of things. Um, and for him, the wake up call was during the uh, insurrection on January 6th of last year. Um, I, yeah, he has like, he has like dozens of guns on his property. Like it's, it's an interesting turn that he's made. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's like scary to me because if American society collapses, I'm screwed. Like, I don't know what I would do. Um, and I can see how if a subreddit like anti-work is like a lot of people can resonate with it and it's growing and, and it speaks of a greater trend. I, yeah, I'm a little like, number one, I understand I understand that the economy and, and a lot of these uh, factors have changed than when our parents were in their 20s and 30s. And yeah, I, I fear for, not that it's gonna happen, but even if, it, even if there's a 1% chance that some kind of society collapsing happens in our lifetime, like that's a really scary thing. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, one, one thought I have as you're describing that is that there's this, there's this strain of like, is it preppers or what, what's the term for these people that are, you know, just basically awaiting the, the apocalypse, the end of society, the dismantling of all, all that, you know, you know, total anarchy preppers and perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely preppers. What? There's, there's obviously something about that philosophy that appeals to people because the number of people who have practiced that and seem kind of attracted to that, I think, in my opinion, at least far exceeds the, the actual risk of that happening or the need for it. And I'm, I'm curious if you guys have any thought, if, you, if you've prepped yourselves, if you are preppers or close to preppers, or if there's a, you know, there's a basement bunker that you have just below you right now, what, what motivates people and drives people to, to this behavior and to see the appeal in that? I'm curious what you think. I will say that another author that I follow, Tim Ferriss, who I think both of you have heard of, he, he made a YouTube video where he talks about how he, he has these like giant jugs that he fills with water and he just keeps it on his property. Uh, and I remember thinking, is this person a madman? Like, wh why does he have this? But Turns out just a year ago, there was, there was like, like Austin, Austin's had a huge problem with like pipes freezing and people not being able to get water. And, and like, it was a really big problem. And, and like, when I, I like remembered that video and I was like, oh shit, there you go, Tim Ferriss. Like, like he looks, he looks like a madman talking about that but then like he was probably totally unaffected and in fact he could probably like have friends come who are like in a really like bad situation and just like have access to like basic things so um so yeah jugs of water is not something that i 
I'm planning to include in my 400 square foot apartment, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, who knows like a decade from now, if I'm like more equipped for it. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's, I think it's helpful to have like, like little things like I'll, I'll travel with a sleeping bag. Like I have a, I have a sleeping bag that you can put in a pouch really easily. Um, and then I also have like a, I also have like a little, uh, sleeping pad. Um, I have like a little, uh, campfire stove that it's like, it's really small. I can throw it in a backpack really easily. And depending on where I'm traveling to, like I might bring my sleeping bag because like, Oh, turns out there's like five of us sleeping in this Airbnb and there's only like four sets of blankets. Like that has saved me in those scenarios. I mean, that's very different from kind of like worst case scenarios, but I do find that it's helpful to prepare somewhat for like bad things that are like 10% chance of happening. Hmm. Uh, my two cents on it. And I think it's a really, I guess there's a lot of different angles we can start on, but one of them is I, I think of like pre preppers to an extent, those who have like true nuclear bunkers and, you know, that's not scalable. I don't think most of us can have nuclear bunkers. Okay. Like if that happens, I'm done. Like it's, it's over, but I do believe in, in the balance of that. And that I've been thinking about it a lot, actually. Right. Like, for one thing, and um, talking about self-defense, if all these things, as you're saying, you know, the, the capital building thing and showing that unrest and at times people do just kind of lose it, but they're not bad people. Just sometimes things get out of control and, and unrest happens, especially in different types of nationalistic governments that are happening right now. And, and so it's not, we're just very lucky to live where we live and have kind of a system that works in a sense that is a lot of unrest in certain ways but uh, overall uh, there's there's a lot of infrastructure and not just road infrastructure that that we take for granted that being said i do think of it in a few different aspects right like i think john has an interesting insight into survivability such as you know if you're homeless or something and need a, your house gets burned down in a forest fire that happened in colorado just the other month and you lose everything people aren't ready like do you have a pack like what's the the minimal viable product for survivability for three days and what would that packing quick pack be also are you prepped in a sense to lose all of your photographic hard assets rather than digitized assets do you like for me if our house burned down all of our childhood photos are gone and those are memories that are important and i've genuinely been thinking about that a lot more of if and when i have a bit more time how do i possibly digitize those while just having that duplication in a privatized, you know, cloud storage, that's cheap. Um, but that's like a very minor thing. And a big one to me that I've been thinking about a lot is I'm defenseless. I'm, I do not know if someone like there was this time we were at a club and someone just did something and they did this really rude thing. And I just kind of like raised my hands like, what do you mean? Why are you doing that? That's so ridiculous. And all my friends kind of thought I was picking a fight. I didn't realize I was picking a fight. I was just kind of saying, you know, like, what, what's wrong with you? What, don't do that. I'm dancing. And it's like, why are you putting this cup back in my hand or something? It was just weird. And everybody else thought I was getting into a fight. I didn't think that or realize it. 
but I just realized like if I had gotten to a fight there, if the guy had like tried to aggressively attack me, I'm, I did Taekwondo as a kid, but I'm pretty sure I would not have done very much because that is so like from a, like a one-on-one point of view, especially if someone is attacking with uh, just physical uh, prowess, like I have a lot to learn there. So I'm trying to learn jujitsu a bit as a part-time hobby, just for fun. Uh, if, if anyone's like kind of being aggressive towards a significant other in the future, if I ever have one that, you know, like how do I defend family or something if needed? Uh, that being said, you never bring like an, that to a knife fight or a knife to a gunfight. So then I also live in Arizona. So then you have to account for wild, wild west out here. And there's a lot of people that are open carry. And there's an interesting idea there of, you know, I don't know about if I want to be carrying around things, but, uh, but maybe I, I've been really thinking about it of, I could learn all the jujitsu I want, but if someone comes at me with a knife or a gun, I, I'm over, you know? And so what is the line? And also defensibility of having that range with a lot of guns very honestly i think you know there's a lot of stories about the country truck country gentlemen and or families that had the trucks with the shotgun right in the back seat and kids like my neighbor grew up with the shotgun just behind her and she'd like pass it to her dad or grandpa or something and he'd just go shoot like a heron or something you know i'm like what that's crazy but to them it was just everyday life and so with regards to you know, scaling just metropolitans, I do think a lot of that has gone away. And I don't know, and this isn't supposed to turn into a debate on whether guns are good or not. But I do think that there's interesting aspects to kind of analyze of what's the most minimal amount of quality self-defense, what's the most minimal amount of quality survivability, what's the most minimal amount of quality of, um, who, who really knows what else I'm kind of curious, but I do like for even money, right? Like, like what I just asked a friend the other day who was wanting to get in the tech industry. I was like, you know, you want to switch into the tech industry, but you're doing X, Y, Z. How much runway have you saved up? And I don't think, and he's like, none, I put it all into crypto. And you're like, are you sure you want to put it all into crypto and not have like even six months of runway? Like what's the minimal amount of money just in case, you lose your job and stuff. And uh, yeah, I think, I, I don't know what the, the, like the base primitives are for what I think most people should know or have or something, but I think, you know, it's kind of that interesting discussion of should we really be, and this is going to be a bit political, but should we really be taking funding away from the police services and, and, and for law enforcement, or should we be having better regulation and, or, mandated instruction for like 20% of their time for continual training to become a blue belt in jujitsu so that they understand how to do a guillotine choke to do it safely and not do it on the only on the carotids and not kill people by accident because they don't really understand it and they have only had like four hours of training in the beginning three years ago and it's not continual like there's a lot to to be to analyze there and I just do really wonder if we're missing the point at times and or just it's about money and or anger and being upset and just losing sight of what is what is the what is the quality bar for many things for us to kind of abide by live by and have those that all around us i think everybody is a really good person most people are really good people they're just busy with their own things and sometimes they forget or don't have training or don't have requirements and sometimes people i don't know like laws are arguably good but arguably bad, depending on a lot of context. So 
Uh, curious question. <laughs> Sam, do you have a? Do you have Sam? I uh, want to uh, also make sure since you have a list that we get to uh, some of the other stuff on your list. So up to you um, how we uh, how we do that. Yeah, Worst transition of all time. Uh -huh. I say let's leave it there. We all set our piece on on the subject, and uh, there's a lot more to go into. But yeah, let's let's shift gears a little bit. I think you actually touched on something that is a nice transition into what I had in mind, which is you mentioned was it Tucker Max buying a say the kind of ranch, uh, a farm right outside of Austin, Texas. Yeah, I think it was a a forty uh, acre ranch, forty five minutes away from Texas. There's a there's an Instagram influencer that my fiance follows who just moved from LA to I think a big uh, ranch style property in Austin in the rural areas as well. So that itself might be a trend. But what you described was made me think of a tweet that I saw earlier this week, and someone was talking from the uh, from the city of Akron, Ohio, about the the liberal bias towards certain cities and how close minded liberals are about where where they live or where they deem acceptable places to live. And, you know, I'm reading this in Brooklyn and I've been to Akron, Ohio, and I'm from Pittsburgh and I, I totally get the rust belt. And I, you know, I kind of, I, I didn't like the tweet. I put my phone away. I kind of steered at it. And then, you know, I had a little bit of distance from it. And I thought, okay, this, this guy's got a point. This guy's got a point. And I was thinking about how of all the forms of liberal snobbery, you know, there's the right degree and the right background and class and you know, certain forms of privilege that are esteemed and not esteemed and things like that. And I realized that maybe not the highest, but definitely among them and a pretty strong form of snobbery is snobbery about place, where you're from, where you're living, particularly where you're living. Given that you have the means to move, have you chosen to a place, have you chosen to move to a place that is one of the, um, you know, the, the very small list of acceptable places. And I think we all know, you know, roughly what those places are. There's the really acceptable and then there's the like acceptable getting there, Austin, probably in that bucket. And then there's everywhere else. And John, you've you've bounced from place to place, although I think you've always stayed within the safe list, um, chasing the dollar. And I, I think I have as well. I grew up in Pittsburgh, went to LA for college, lived in Chicago after that in New York now. So I think I've always been on the safe list. Hugh, if you're in, are you in Phoenix, Tucson? Uh, yeah, Phoenix, Gilbert. I think, okay, yeah. So Phoenix, Phoenix, it seems like it's getting there, getting there. But I was curious your thoughts on, you know, Phoenix and uh, I assume you have family in the area, but what that's been like and kind of what, what your own thinking about um, place and where you live is. And I think you used to live in San Francisco as well. If, yeah. Is that right? Okay, cool. Yeah. So what was that transition like? And I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Just, just so I fully understand, because there's like a part that I kind of missed was okay. safe area or something. What was that? Yeah, I mean, a, a socially acceptable sanctioned list of cities and, you know, it's New York, Boston, D.C., but it's not Baltimore and it's probably not Philadelphia and it's definitely Got it. not. We're talking about the immigration. Yeah, yeah. Or just, you know, in, um, domestic migration, you know, you, if you're born in Oklahoma City and you are a tech professional, you end up in one of a certain number of places, even with remote work, you're likely to choose to be in one of those places. And so there are these great you know agglomerations of talented people in certain areas but really not in other areas got and, it and, um, could you redefine the like the what are the reasons or perks for safe areas again because i know there is some there's politically there's some there's stuff to that there's right 
Oh yeah, yeah. I think so. If if you say to somebody, why is it the case that you favor New York over, you know, Huntsville, Alabama? Some people would say, well, you know, the abortion laws are better in New York, and gun control is handled better, and I prefer the taxation. And you know, I think those things have a basis in, you know, in something. I'd rather be in a blue state than a red state. Things like that. But I think it goes beyond that because even within blue states, there are certain cities in Massachusetts that aren't quite on this list, um, but would still satisfy a lot of those criteria. So I'm, I guess I'm reflecting on the fact, and I've been guilty of this too, that there's, there's a certain, a certain narrow-mindedness to this view that a lot of places are fine. There are a lot of aspects of places that you can make work, even if it's not totally suitable. And I think there might be a lot of societal benefits to people spreading out a little bit more, particularly in this, you know, pandemic, remote working friendly environment that just hasn't, hasn't quite happened or hasn't quite taken off yet. Got you. And yeah, so to your question, uh, similarities, differences, San Francisco, Phoenix, it's interesting. A lot of Californians are coming to Arizona and I'll be honest, I'm a bit ignorant on this question of whether or not we're extremely, uh, we're a safe quote unquote designation in, in Phoenix. I, I'd say, you're, you know, you're getting there, you're getting there, not quite there, but getting there. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I do wonder a lot about mm, the separation between church and state. I do wonder a lot about people's as political views, social views, um, religious views, spiritual views, right? and how those conflate. And also, I do wonder and or worry sometimes if things become too isolated of just one type of characteristic. Mm, I think it, there's a lot of that already happening, even whether or not you're living in one place or another. Uh, there's a lot of just due to the rise of technology and social silos that have been crafted and curated to, to increase the retention rate and utilization rate of users' times on social media apps. I think there's been a lot of proliferation of different political views into isolated silos. I forget what they're called, as everyone knows, your social circles. And I don't, and geographically, I think it then becomes even more polarized. Um, so there's a lot to unpack in that question. Um, yeah, I, I wonder, like, like for one thing, I, yeah, there's like, which, which point do we discuss, you know? Uh, so like for example, like very simply, right. Um, do we want to talk about those that are homeless and how we're treating homeless people in San Francisco? That's something that really disappointed me. Do we want to treat, uh, talk about how, there's a huge wealth disparity and a lot of the abilities, like, do we want to talk about um, how there's an $800 recurring yearly fee for even creating and having and holding an LLC in California? And that then already disenfranchises so many people. And if you even have a barrier to entry of even one single person to create a business, who knows where that business comes, even if they are the low socioeconomic class to start off in, like, are these good things? I, I don't fully think so. Um, is it really $800 <laughs> to have an LLC and you have to do like, if you want to do business as a cross-border transaction LLC to do business in a DBA doing business as or something in California from an outside LLC, say Arizona, 
you have to even go through more groups and regulations. I don't know, like, what is the, the line between restricting free trade and commerce and especially even domestically and, and internationally, like, you know, um, and then you want to talk about guns and gun rights and whether or not that's a good thing. Uh, Texas's abortion laws, like, uh, you know, church and state civic unions versus having people who are of the same sex that love each other not being able to sit at the bedside of someone else when they're dying and that's their loved one and just because the term of marriage is conflated both civically and spiritually like it should maybe what if what if we just what if we just changed the term of marriage and a civic level to civic union and then literally no preacher could ever say the word marriage is incorrect and then there would never be an issue about this again and then you can have taxes split and then everybody who wants to have a spiritual marriage can have a spiritual marriage and everyone who wants a civic union can go literally sit by the bedside of their love dying one who's suffering of cancer and is lonely and can be there you know like you you can't just just, ah. you can't you can't just keep introducing topics and then introducing topics and then introducing topics Just a hard question know. to answer about this safe. I don't know what a safe state is. <laughs> well, let me, let me, yeah, yeah. Well, just just to go back to that idea, it has nothing really to do with physical safety. I, I, I guess that's kind of a misleading term. But, you know, as you're describing that, the, the my slightly contrarian view is that things like social media and, you know, the internet and the legalization of gay marriage and things like that have made it more possible than ever, I think, to live on a farm in Kansas as a man with your husband, to be legally married to him, to communicate with friends elsewhere, to work as an engineer for, you know, you can work for Oracle and you can live in in Leavenworth and you can do that and you can arbitrage the cost of living. and yet it seems like, you know, some people go, some people who have the option to work remotely will go back to where they're from and, you know, or where their in-laws are from and things like that. But it feels to me like people by and large haven't done that. And if I play forward, you know, five or 10 years, and I think about what's going to continue, it feels like there's going to be more and more of a concentration of affluence and education and I guess po- political polarization as well within certain cities and not within other cities. And it makes the places that aren't attracting people worse in the places that are attracting people better, but more and more expensive and crazier and probably even more divisively torn between the homeless in those communities and the people who are very, very wealthy and who don't want them there. And you know, that, that tension is not going to go anywhere. And I, I guess I'm just reflecting and thinking, you know, it's hard for me to get out of this mentality myself, but maybe there's some aspect of that that is either economically inefficient or just unhealthy or reflects a certain, you know, just, sociologically imposed view of things that doesn't have to be or shouldn't be, um, but, but is, and that I, I definitely feel affected by. And I'm curious if, if, if hopefully, oh, I don't know if that's clarifying or helpful, but do you guys feel the same way? Is there, or if I said, if I said, Hugh, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to pop you down and it's going to be in Northern Michigan, would you say like, you now give me, give me the hell out of this place. Or would you say like, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this work. This, this is doable. This is more doable now than ever. I wonder, I wonder if there's a lot of FOMO, like fear of missing out. Uh, there's proximity to your friends and your friends are already in San Francisco. So therefore I'm going to, I'm going to move there and all my friends are there. So I, I definitely, I definitely see that. And that, that's, a, that's a nice network effect, I guess. That's, that's one upside of everybody being in just a few places. I, I, for me, there's, 
there's a number of things that one would have to analyze in a sense, right? Like, um, I, I really, I'm lucky to be a mixed blood and I kind of like can fit in a lot of places, but I also at times can stick out and, you know, like socioeconomic class, uh, ethnic heritage, skin color, um, what are things that I'm interested, uh, ability to make money and what is my job and does it have access there? So like a lot, of, a lot of those things, if they had what, you know, is family out there? Do I have some friends out there? Is the community solid or things that I believe in kind of out there too? So what, what makes a community, right? Like we talk about craft community, building meaningful careers here, but what is it that would cause me to be happy in a place like getting plopped into Michigan, just like a Sims character, right? And, <laughs> exactly. and there's a lot of things that come into, and I believe, right, as the, the five layers of foundations, I was having one-on-ones with, with um, my team this week, and I started to reanalyze and rethink about what it is that makes and can improve the employee experience and how do we keep accountable as managers. And, you know, it, it's people, it's family, friends, uh, health, hobbies, and job, right? Those are the five main foundations that I found at least. And of course, those have sub foundations and sub sub derivations. And yeah, if a lot of those are satisfied, I feel like I could be happy anywhere, really. Like, um, that's what I think at its core, humans are survival. What are we the best at? We're the best at creating tools and surviving. And what are we? We're just the progeny of many uh, generations worth of survivors. And so while I don't think I would like to and choose to, if I had the choice to live in a very, very cold climate with a lot of cold winters, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack in that question, but yeah, I, I'd be more than happy to, to live in Michigan if it satisfied a lot of my core needs and me as a human being, what is it to be a millennial in the 21st century? What type of things am I, do I have access to and have privilege to? with regards to my relative ability to have a certain benchmark and minimum level of happiness. And I think that benchmark compared to like a king in the 14th century and, you know, everyone's like, oh, I'd rather live like a king in the 14th century. I'm like, no, you know, to be honest, like they still had to use latrines without toilet paper, you know, and stuff like that. And sure, you had someone walking out your your pot to, to throw it out the window, but it's still going into a pot you know so um yeah i think just quality level of living is solid already and yeah michigan could be really cool i think michigan people are really happy in a lot of ways and hopefully it would be in a part of town that i could jive with yeah interesting question what about you two i don't know this is yeah i think i'd be fine i mean as as someone who (laughs) As someone, as someone who's like, I want a transcript of both of your answers side by side. <laughs> like, I haven't left my apartment today, so it doesn't matter if I'm in New York City or in Michigan or in the uh, in like Antarctica. Um, yeah, I, I can I can make it work. I, I remember I was thinking about moving to Boise for. A month and a half this was when i was choosing between boise and seattle or boise that's how they say it but uh people were shocked they were like why do you want to go there i've like i've never been there and i was like it's a perfectly fine place but for some reason doesn't have the same branding as seattle does like it's not a tech hub sure but 
but it's a like it's a perfectly fine place with a lot of nature and a lot of friendly people um i i think often those places those kinds of places are really overlooked and that makes it a really good opportunity and like sure there's a time and a place to be in a big city but then there's also a time and a place to be in a in a town where you're not you're not like lost um i think i forgot who said it but then someone was saying that oh, it was my friend when he he said when he first moved to new york city it was weird because there were so many people and yet he was lonely so it was just like a weird paradox oh man when i went to san francisco for two years the amount i struggled with mental health and just community and like finding friends oh my goodness like luckily i found john and a few others but yeah it is the feeling of isolation does not matter where you are locally or geographically it's it's about the tools and your personal ability to connect like tangent slightly but it is a really interesting thing like if you're having are you interested in having kids either of you I'm so yeah. yeah so yeah. okay mm-hmm. when do you think and this is a super like i need to think more about this like if i had a kid i think i would be a very big mess up of a parent right now like it when do you think you need to supposedly psychologically teach your kid and really get them to and figure out how to get them to socially connect with others and learn the skills of just being social beings uh are you asking what what the right answer what is age, what, what age do you think like when do you think you would do that i have no idea but i do know what the psychological person said i know that i, th- I know that my sister is is very keen on this she has two girls who are um, nine months old and about three years old and from the time the older one was a baby she was saying they need to be socializing they need to be socializing and I think what's the point of socializing because they can't talk they can hardly make eye contact but she said that there's some value in it and I thought, well, that's a mother being a mother. And of course she's going to say that, but I'm curious what the right answer is. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Sounds like, sounds like the right answer to me. Yeah. So Jordan Peterson is the guy that I was listening to for this one specifically. And he was saying between two and four and four is like really late. Like if you miss that, your, your kid can have really, really big issues because of the framework of learning from one another and, and learning from your, your people. It's like, whoa, okay. It's, it's so funny because if you, if you rescue an animal, they'll say this to you. They'll say, you know, there's this critical socialization period for kittens, for puppies. They missed it. It's over. You're just going to have to deal with this behavior. And it's very explicit there. For humans, I, I've never heard someone say it quite like that. And I've never heard someone give up on a person who missed it, though. I, I don't know. Maybe if you miss it, you just, you, you know, you missed it. So, you know, you missed it. What, what can you do? But I, I know hope it's not fatalistic. <laughs> that would be very Yeah, sad. I know. It's quite, quite depressing. It's like the language window. If you miss that, you're, you're, you're definitely in bad shape. But my, my sister has said repeatedly, and I've kind of brushed it off or dismissed it a little bit, but as you're saying this, yeah, there's probably a point to it that with COVID in particular, she worries about this because her, her daughter was, I don't know, late ones when COVID started. And so the bulk of her life now has been the pandemic. And so she used to go to outings and with friends, and now she doesn't go to stores and she doesn't do very much. And they're worried about the long-term repercussions of that. And I think, well... If it's socialization period versus contracting an illness that seems to have pretty low impact on kids and kids of that age, I, you know, to say, okay, you know, just, just socialize them. 
but it's more nuanced than that. And of course, I'm not a parent and I'm not, you know, it's hard to put your, con your child consciously in harm's way, even if the, the risk of something happening is quite low. Yeah, I would say, I would say uh, out of this global pandemic, like apart from the people who have died uh, because of it, the people who got the short end of the stick are, are uh, like kids who were not able to go to school and uh, many of whom did not have like, like reliable internet or like computers. Um, and it's like, even if you did get it, maybe it wasn't reliable or it's like, it's like, how are you supposed to, how are you supposed to stay focused looking at a screen when you're like 12 years old and even as a teacher like how are you supposed to teach over zoom um and i think the research has been pretty clear that that uh like kids have kids have uh just like their iq levels um or however they measure it have have gone down um yeah kind of sucks I, I actually saw that i saw a study where they tested kids and they found that they were a certain number of iq points behind where they would they were expected to be and then they extrapolated that to an adult effect and they said that the effect was something like six to eight points which is about half a standard deviation of intelligence which is a huge huge amount and you know it's early speculation i i you know i think that's probably overstated you know i think these kids especially with at earlier ages with more plasticity will catch up. But again, seven points of IQ versus the risk of COVID. And I'm certainly not a COVID denier, anti-vaxxer in any, in any way or anything like that. But um, I think the calculus is a little bit different maybe for kids than for you know, elderly parents or just, um, you know, just, just, just different segments of the population. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that statistic yet. And that's something on the same lines that I read, though, was a lot of the students that had gone Zoom remote, and I'm trying to remember if it was in, including like high schoolers, but a lot of the kids that did that when they came back to school, they now have to go to a lot of them have like mental depression, not ability to, they've lost the ability to, and of course, I love your word plasticity, plasticity, you know, to, to get better and amend in a growth mindset, but a lot of them came back with lack of social skills and are unable to communicate in a positive and healthy manner and their listening abilities are off and you know it's like whoa this is genuinely affecting a lot of our youth and or ourselves and the teachers aren't fully equipped to address this type of classroom situation and, and how do you do that at scale because what are the lasting repercussions from covid especially since it's still going on and oh my goodness it, it feels too, and I, I think I think there's some data that has backed this up, but it feels like a lot of the rift too has been between, you know, there's certain students that are at home with, you know, pleasant home lives where parents work at home and can accommodate the kids or, you know, they can have a nanny take care of them and things like that. They're going to be okay. They're always going to be okay in life. But there are a lot of kids for whom the very best thing for them is to be out of the house at school, you know, being fed, being in an environment where they're they're learning and they're you know, with teachers who are stuck at home, you know, having to care for siblings, you know, whether parents have to work or can't work and things like that. And that I think, I think the study suggested that the educational outcomes for those two groups has, while already large, has gotten larger 
over the pandemic because those kids in particular were affected, which is seems intuitive enough to me and, and quite unfortunate if, if true. Oh man, this this uh, this podcast episode is making me sad. <laughs> so let me yeah, let me change the subject completely, completely. And we can maybe where we what it's an hour. Oh, we have yeah, we have a uh, some time like five to ten minutes. Uh, that's cool. Um, I I, th- I think the last time I talked to you guys was a couple of months ago. So I had an interesting experience in, I guess, early to mid December. Since then, which is that I got an email from uh, my graduate school alma mater, which is uh, NYU, and they asked, I think first for money, and I was you know not not in a position to do that, but then they asked for um, alumni interview prepping and resume review. And I thought, okay, well, I haven't done that before in a way like this, but I look at a lot of resumes day to day. So maybe I can be helpful there. And I feel like I've gone through the interviewing process a couple of times, hopefully I can be helpful. And so I ended up talking to a couple of students and these are generally grad students. So early to mid twenties or so who are graduating from this professional program um, or, or are about to graduate. And most of them are trying to make an entry into data science or analytics fields typically with a background that is and maybe something STEM related, but not necessarily data science, or in some cases, they're trying to make a complete pivot from kind of a prior work life. And what was really interesting about the experience is that naively, I'm kind of going, you know, like I know how to write a resume. It's not that hard. You just have to get a certain couple of things right. And, you know, anybody could write a one page document that says, you know, check where your commas are and make sure the formatting is there and list the dates and make sure you're consistent with the style and, and things like that. So I was going in feeling very confident about it. And the interesting part of the experience is that as I was talking to these students, I would say overwhelmingly, I was unable to offer them this kind of reflexive cliche, best practice advice that I expected to be able to. And instead was going, oh, like that's a real problem. Like, I don't know what to do about that. That's hard. I don't know how to solve that. And the problems are like, you're trying to pivot from A to B and they're totally different. How do you do that? How do you frame yourself? You have no work experience. How do you build yourself if you have no work experience? You have very little sense of what you want to be doing. You're just kind of trying to get hired, which is you know totally fair. And most people graduating college are in that position, but it makes it really hard to write a resume and it makes it really hard to prep for interviews or something like you have this strong aspiration to work in this field, but you know very little about the field and what the day-to-day work looks like. And so when you're, in, when you're asking, when you're being asked questions and you're answering, you don't know what you need to say or what people are expecting to hear because you just haven't, you know, dipped into the work and you don't know what it's like. And so I thought, okay, it's actually, these are actually really hard things that these people are struggling with. And so I'd say I, I did my best to help them, but um, yeah, it was tough. So I'm curious, you know, did you guys have this experience coming out of, uh, coming out of college? I think you've both made career pivots to some extent. Do you remember this being a thing that you struggled with or maybe, maybe I'm overstating the difficulty a little bit. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts John are. John and I went to Koru. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> They're no longer a thing for that. <laughs> but, uh, John, do you have anything? <laughs> well, i i can uh, I can share my experience because because uh, not everyone has it as easy as you. <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> Hold on. Wait, that's a loaded joke. <laughs> no, we're kidding. Let's go. Hey, he, well, yeah. He, uh, my like my understanding was that Hugh took a course on 
building web applications or like mobile applications and then and then a recruiter messaged him and then the first company that he interviewed for he got and like it wasn't a right long-term fit but then he used that to go to his next job and then his next job and then now now he was the uh, head of design so oh my God, i'm shaking my head thank <laughs> <laughs> you is there is there anything that was uh is there anything in that that was uh, misrepresented? Well, I, I had previous work experience. Uh, and so, I mean, my resume was, I had two years in tech already. And so when I was in the interview room, I was able to talk about it. But and I mean, it's true. I did take a $20 Udemy course and study it for like six months and then apply to a place and get it. But um, I, I think... Yeah, actually, I mean, it is a bit interesting. I can find, uh, yeah. Well, like you're talking about resume building, right? And we had Heather on. Heather in an earlier podcast, I believe it was a podcast 19, is an amazing Fiverr entrepreneur and helps craft and curate resumes for people. And and I think it's an amazing business that she does and a service that she does. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, I, hmm. Resumes and applying to things. I want, yeah. There's a there's a lot there's a lot there because I I had this discussion where I I debated a friend's dad once like six years ago without realizing I was debating him because I didn't realize it. But they were kind of like profusing the 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 methodology of ah oh, this it's kind of like anti work sentiment. It's like, oh, it's just applying to work is so hard these days. It's all just bogus and you just have to apply and you just have to mass apply. And the more you apply to you, the higher the chance you get of a response. And you just have to apply to like 300, you know, like, wait, what? You have to apply to one, two, 300 places before you even get a response. And I was like, I know a lot of people do this. And personally, I, I don't actually agree with that methodology. I personally have a few other belief systems on, and there's actually a really interesting person if you're interested in how to think about it from a different design perspective. Like he's a UX designer. You look look up like Google designer UX resume application. And he basically like, does he does this crazy perception on how do you rethink the application process if you're an applicant and an applicant, like how you're basically trying to like figure out how to play Jedi mind tricks on the person that you're applying to to get them to already know about you? How do you get into the room with them even before applying the resume? How do you reach out on LinkedIn or whatever tools there are? How do you ask them to have a virtual coffee? How do you learn more? How do you show interest? How do you show up? And uh, 80% is just showing up and just being on the radar. Um, and then there's even more to it, but it was a very interesting one. I've sent it to a few friends when they've been kind of like moaning about this whole process of never getting responses back. But I, I, yeah, I, could, <laughs> I could show you I don't know if this is like time and place, but I can show you the resume if I can find it of what I sent in for that initial app. And you'll kind of be like, wait, you did what Hugh resume for that one for the, uh, um, let me see if I can find it. Talk about something else in a second, but you'll see what I'm talking about. Like, I don't think you need a good resume to actually uh, application. Um, shoot, man. Okay, for those of you listening, you should have a good resume. <laughs> Why would <Yeah>. you not? <laughs> I, I, 
no. I believe it's not about having a good resume. I believe it's about having a resume that gets you in the room. That would and be what a good resume. Mean? No, uh, depends because. Q, you're you're assuming everyone has perfect grammar and everyone knows how to represent themselves in a way that someone who recruits would would know and understand. Like that's not always the case, and a lot of people need help to get to that point. Like you're you're assuming it's like oh, among good resumes, like there's a point where where the feedback just becomes more like suggestions and like if it's your preference to but then not everyone is at that point with what their resume looks like well i mean is the question like should you be getting feedback from someone who has a professional eye on resumes yeah of course i mean if you want to sure is that the question well i'd say that was the purpose of, of having the conversation with these students and i guess I only call in the question how useful that is. I think there are other, you know, schools of thought about this, which is, you know, my opinion is quite subjective too. And I know what I'm looking for, but somebody else might be looking for something totally different. Um, there are other things like this doesn't look like what I want, but it's a connection or they've beaten down my door. They've done some of the things that you're describing and they're in the room. So I might as well talk to them. And now that they're here, they actually seem kind of great. They, they're, they, you know, describe themselves well and they're, really ambitious and I'm, I'm willing to give them a chance though I, I think stories like that are um fewer and fewer and farther between these days but maybe that's just my impression I, I can talk about what I did when I after I graduated from coding boot camp uh so awesome. I worked on an open source project that we made that is not maintained anymore but it looks cool because you can say that you worked on an open source project um, I took a job where I was teaching web development and I started helping out with a local, um, civic tech group. Uh, and then I worked, I like volunteered on a, on a local project. So the goal, the goal was to just do whatever I could to learn. And then once I was like learning a little bit, then the goal after that was to be paid to do the same thing. So that was uh, every job after that. Um, it was not, it was not easy. It was, it was very difficult. And um, yeah, if anyone is, is going through that, um, I don't really have any advice because everyone's situation is different, but um, yeah, just try to learn a little bit every day um and like try to have a good attitude i think i was in a unique place because i used to work as a door-to-door -door salesman so i was like i was like ah oh, this is not as hard as as a uh, knocking on doors um but yeah it's definitely the case that if you find a good first job then that opens up a lot of doors like my my last job was was really good preparation for my interview for my current job. And yeah, like everything worked out and everything was good and everything is good, but there was a lot of a uh, struggle and a lot of work to get there. But if it's worth it, then it's worth, uh, it's worth working for it.
Yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll quickly add in here if we're giving advice, right? Like if anyone was listening and interested, I think what John did was absolutely incredible. And I think that's one of the biggest things you can do. If you want to break down like a quick five minute synopsis is I don't, if people are wanting to transition jobs from either being self-taught, going to a boot camp, coming out from college and applying into an industry sector that they don't have a lot of experience in or, or anything. One, of course, like building up and working. I don't really like the idea of working for free, free, but just like working on side projects that are learning and sometimes beggars can't be choosers. So that's actually one of the best things. And sometimes you do and are able to create value enough and make connections where people get you jobs, not just resumes. But then once you do have that type of thing and you have that experience and you have a really quality resume like Spencer, right? Spencer, I forget what episode he was on the blockchain dev self-taught worked on incredible projects. And once he had those projects, he was, he's, he's a star junior dev and no one's going to be saying no to that. But I think what I've noticed from a lot of different people that I've met both friends and just friends of friends or people I've talked with, I honestly think a lot of people say they try really hard and they do, but I don't think they do it in a way that's actually very, like they don't, something that I've noticed and, and please, like, maybe this is me being a, I don't know, hard. I don't think people, I think people like, I want to become a data scientist. I don't know. I'm just going to say that for an example, but you can't just expect someone will accept you after you took a W3 course for a month to be a data scientist. Let's be very honest. And then you can't go moping that you applied to 200 jobs and you have an amazing resume from different companies and every adjective of spearheaded and led the charge and stuff like that are all on there you know you've a lot of people i think miss the point where either you save up your nest egg you have six months runway and you quit your job and you work i don't think that's a great idea i think you should be on a horse before switching over horses um i did that i got on the ground and it was really difficult to get back onto a horse to get paid uh, but um if you're working a job, like a lot of people try to transition out before they're ready. And like, it's like building a career ladder for employees from a managerial perspective, or just a self-taught perspective. If I'm trying to, and I'm not doing this right now, but if I'm trying to become a lead designer after being the senior product designer, I can't just become a lead designer. I have to actually have the traits, the metrics, the skills, the benchmark, the things that acknowledge me as a lead designer to become a lead designer. And I think a lot of people say, Hey, I want to be a manager. Give me the manager title. No, like, honestly, a lot of the times and I've been talking to a few people about this is like, no, you have to take the leadership position first. You have to do the job before it happens. Sometimes in a scaling startup, that's the thing. Maybe if you get hired in directly, that's a different story. But if you're wanting to scale yourself and grow your own ladder and quote unquote, the future of work, which is an interesting book by, I forget the guy's name, you have to create your own ladder. And how do you do that? You proactively already do the job and then once you say and show your performance metrics have those ready and you say this is the job that i want and you create that job position for you that's how i do it at least but with regards to applications and resumes uh, i'm going to show you this this is this is not a brag i'm not proud of myself but this is what got me the job and you're talking about like you know not you i'm not, not being aggressive but having really good adjectives everyone talks about that this is what i want i worked okay sure i had a nice leg up my first job out of college was at Airbnb and I had the recruiting coordinators and I quit two or three times. And we all know this story or something, you know, in a different episode. And I had like four jobs there and cried a lot. I cried to every single manager there. 
that, that I was a direct report to for many different reasons. But then I retaught myself after going back and working at the Apple store and selling phones, you know, this is the resume that I submitted and that got me my first dev job. That's it. It's Hugh Berryman, multiple designer and dev, freelance mobile designer, product specialist, apprentice prototype designer, product production assistant, digital archivist, recruiting coordinator, swimmer, MVP captain, Pomona College, Hugh Berryman, there's my number. And that's it. And like, that's the resume I submitted that got me in the room to then get me hired to become a developer for my first company, right? Like, I, I'm not saying that's the way anybody can do it. I'm just saying like, it's not about how many resumes you send out. It's not about how many adjectives you have in it. Not about, it's about the quality of work that you can produce, the knowledge that you have, the people that you know, and or your proactivity to get into the room with people that you want to know and learn from people and people get you connected to other people. If someone doesn't know or have a job position for you, the number one thing you can do with that person, if they're kind and friendly and or like already got a 20 minute time boxed virtual coffee or coffee chat and you bought it for them or they bought it for you, it doesn't matter. Just say, hey, did you like this? Do you think there's any potential in me? Is there anyone that you might know that you could point me in the direction to, to possibly connect with, to learn more? Because genuinely, I know maybe right now is not the right time. Maybe I'm not at the right skill level. Maybe I have a lot more to learn. But what I do know that I don't know is that I don't know enough of how to get to that next step. Is there anyone that you can connect me with? And keep reaching out. If that's a dead end, find another. You know, it's like, it's proactivity that I think is a lot of, I think there's just a lot of lethargy and a lot of anti-work sentiment of excuses and escapist type mentalities. And, and maybe I'm being hard, but that's my point of view. That's a nice for what it's worth, where we started. For what it's worth, I think that's a really good resume, especially like in your, in your scenario and you're looking for development work, like the Airbnb brand name has a lot more than like being a recruiting co coordinator. So like at that point, it didn't matter that you had bullet points or not. So I think, I think that was like a perfectly good resume. Um, Sam, what were you going to say? And also, can you add on parting thoughts to it? No, I was just going to say that the mention of anti-work uh, was a nice circle back to, to where we started and probably a fitting place to, to leave the conversation. We covered a lot of ground today. Um, but yeah, so I, I enjoyed the conversation. You guys are thoughtful. And I, I like, like throwing these random topics out and seeing what happens. And uh, I've got... I've got a scrolling list. I've got more topics. We haven't crossed that many off. So, uh, you know, I'm always, always, always game to come back. It's a good, it's a good time for me. Yeah. I would love You're that. always welcome, Sam. Dude, thank you so much, Sam. Um, do we do a parting thoughts thing here? Cause we had Sam on before or what, shall we just close it out, John? What do you think? I want Sam's hot take on a random subject. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't prepare a hot take on my list, so therefore I don't have a hot take. I'm, I'm utterly dependent on a list, but I'll have a hot take next time. What's the <laughs> latest thing that you've learned about that's a nerdy passion of yours? Um, I was telling John the other day, uh, we're starting to think about maybe the home buying process. And I think mm. it occurred to me as we're jumping into that whole little bit that I know next to nothing about how any of these things work. And this is a financial system and infrastructure that underlies a ton of, you know, the American economy and development and life for many people. And so I felt maybe not quite the nerdiest pursuit, but I thought, okay, it's probably good to educate myself. And I'm, I'm at a remedial stage right now, but I'm, I'm getting there. It's, it's, it's interesting. 
I love that. Maybe we should talk more. I'm trying to learn about the real estate market too right now. Ooh. It is such a thing, but yeah, let's talk more. <laughs> we can do that for the next episode. Yeah, we need, I, I don't know if I could hold the conversation for an hour. It's just, I, there's so much to learn. I, I know nothing really. I don't know if I can hold a conversation for an hour, says a podcast co-host. <laughs> on real estate, on real estate. I don't know. We, let's, let's bring someone that Sam can ask questions to for real estate on then. We can all learn together. There you go. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well, um, with that is pretty much the end of another quality i hope episode that was a fun one that was incredible thank you sam for coming on that was genuinely like wow you you, you came in with questions i love that that was such a cool idea um anyways this is the end uh, to another moon tea podcast episode where we talk about craft community and building meaningful careers please tune in next time hopefully this was enjoyable and see you later peace